All right. Good morning, y'all. How are we doing today? Hope y'all are doing good. Hope you're having a great weekend. Uh, my name is Eric. I'm the lead pastor here at The Story. I want to welcome all of you who are gathered here in person at our Museum District campus on this holiday weekend. Also, I want to say hi to our Timber Grove campus. We love y'all at Timber Grove, don't we? Tell them how, they feel, how we feel about them at Timber Grove. Woo! All right. We love you so much. And um, if you're unfamiliar with that campus, it's up in the Heights, 8200 Washington Avenue. And we're so proud of, uh, of Timber Grove. And um, we're having an event this Thursday over at Timber Grove, uh, Thursday night, Charity Trivia Night. It's getting real this Thursday upstairs uh, at our Timber Grove building. It's in the, uh, the Railway Heights um, space up there, the market space up there. They've, they've allowed us to have Charity Trivia Night up there Thursday night. So that's going to be great. If you haven't registered already, you can get registered online or just show up and we'll get you registered in person. Even if you don't have a team to play with, we'll connect you with one. All right, we've also got town hall meeting this Tuesday uh, night, uh, 6.30 here in this, um, in this campus, so y'all be sure and, uh, and make, make a note of that as well. All right, quick programming note, okay? This is a holiday weekend. Your average senior pastor doesn't work on Memorial Day weekend. I'm not your average senior, I'm just kidding. I'm <laughs> just, I'm here because we're rounding, out, <laughs> we're rounding out this series but I did take a break from making study guides this week. I didn't put the time and effort into making those study guides like I normally do, so y'all need to follow along. I did want to come and wrap up our series because today's topic is, well, a tough one. And this is a little heads up for parents of littles. Um, I've got a 12-year-old and a 14-year-old, and I would be totally fine with, with both of them hearing everything I'm going to say today. Today's topic is about a woman's right to choose and that sort of that sort of business. And so if you've got a little one, um, here's the deal. Initially, this was supposed to be a uh, children's ministry Sabbath day until the children's ministry staff heard what Pastor Eric's talking about. And they were like, maybe we should offer parents an option. And so Dylan, who you just saw on the video, is in the back right now. He's our student ministry coordinator. He can get your little one to uh, uh, their age-appropriate room if you would like them to go. Otherwise, totally cool either way. I think um, this is not going to be an R-rated message by any stretch, okay? And besides, the fact that I'm preaching on today's topic is your fault. Y'all voted on it, all right? So True or False is a, a series we've been in the thick of for six weeks now. This is the last week. Every week we've been asking uh, different questions about different controversial claims. And instead of telling y'all what the last topic would be, we put it to a vote. We gave you four controversial claims to choose from, and when the polls had closed, the clear winner was the claim that the Bible is explicitly pro-life. All right, so thank you all very much for that, <laughs> putting me in that position. I actually have no problem um, talking about this topic. I think it's very important, and uh, once in a while, we'll set aside a week to, to discuss it. But this is our task uh, today. And then at the end of this service, we get to dedicate a precious baby. And at 11 o'clock, at least here at uh, the Museum District Campus, we have uh, a baptism, an adult baptism. It's going to be a great day. But first, we're going we're gonna to take up this claim that the Bible is explicitly pro-life. Before I tell you what the, what the Bible says on this topic, I'm going to start this message in a little bit of a different way. Instead of opening our Bibles and getting right to it, what I'd like to start with is a picture some of y'all are going to find slightly off-putting or disturbing. Um, it's, it's a little upsetting, I, I guess. It's a picture uh, that's made the rounds on social media. I saw it on Twitter. I've seen it on Reddit over the last couple of years. This is an image of a woman wearing a T-shirt 
that says, I've had 21 abortions, <clears throat> with exclamation point at the end. And to be clear, I do not know this woman. Um, we blurred her face in the picture. It felt like the right thing to do to, I don't want to cause her any um, problems or, you know, it's, it's out there already, but I just didn't think it was right to not blur her face. And um, for all I know, like someone here is like related to her or something. It's like, that's the worst case scenario. One of you see like Aunt Sally up here. Um, it's like, that would ruin your whole weekend. I said, that, would be, that would be a shock to find someone you know uh, wearing uh, this shirt and being featured at your church. Um, but <clears throat> without her face blurred in the actual image, she appears to be in her 50s. She has long uh, graying hair. She has kind of a wry smile on her face as if to indicate that she is somewhat proud of uh, this proclamation that her shirt makes. Y'all, excuse me. Just allergies, not the Rona, all right? Don't worry. <clears throat> I feel like I have to say that every time I cough. Y'all feel that way? <laughs> all right. <clears throat> so this woman and her shirt. Why am I showing you this to start a sermon about a topic so incendiary as abortion? Am I showing you this because by showing you a woman like this and making her the figurehead of the pro-choice movement that it's easier to make a pro-life case? Am I showing you this because, you know, if I can make her sort of the straw man that we're working against, then my job here today is easier? No. <clears throat> I'm not showing you this woman because of her. I'm showing you that picture because of me. Because I know every time I have laid eyes on this picture over the last couple of years, whether it's been on Twitter <clears throat> or on Reddit, I've always had the same reaction. I've been repulsed. I felt disgusted by her. I've wanted nothing to do with her. <clears throat> I've judged her. And I say all of this as a confession of my sin and not hers, all right? Believe what you want about someone who wears a shirt like this. I'm offering this image and this little diatribe as a confession about me <clears throat> because there's nothing Christian about the way I have in my spirit reacted to her. And this is what I mean. This is from Scripture. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 12, where Paul writes, What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? All right? <clears throat> so if this woman was a preacher or an outspoken Christian misrepresenting my God to the world, that's one thing. But if she's, she's not proclaimed herself to be any of those things. <clears throat> so... Why do I feel the need to go out of my way and feel these things that I feel about this woman when I see this image of her? What it shows me is there's some part of me, even though I've been a Christian now for nine years since I met Jesus in the Holy Land, there's still some part of me that has yet to be infiltrated by the light of Christ. Some little part of my heart that I have kept hidden from the light of Christ that remains dark to this day and that reacts in that way to an image 
like this one because, and I know this is the source of it, there's some little part of me that enjoys finding someone whose sin looks worse than mine. Because the longer I can focus on her and what a sinner she is, the less I have to think about my own, the more I get to let myself off the hook. Isn't that why we pile on to our favorite sinners out there, or our least favorite, or whatever you want to put it? Isn't that why we point fingers in judgment? I think it is. Now, as I prepared and prayed about this message this week, I felt the Holy Spirit was splitting me open, gutting me. And as, as much as I wanted to just give you all the facts and just lay it all out there, take it or leave it, good guys and bad guys, the Holy Spirit kept putting in front of me this word, mercy, mercy, Eric, mercy. Show mercy to those to whom this issue is close to home because it's not that far away from your home, Eric. Mercy, mercy, mercy. And so that's where I wanted to begin today is with that word, mercy. For that woman in that picture, for any woman who's ever made the decision that we're talking about today, for any man who's ever encouraged her to or paid for her to, for any woman who might be facing that decision today or in the future, mercy. Because I'm convinced about two things today when it comes to Jesus and the sanctity of life. First of all, I'm convinced as I read the scriptures that Jesus is the most pro-life person who's ever walked the face of the earth. Secondly, I'm convinced that Jesus is far more pro-woman than anyone seems to give him credit for, and he would look at and speak to women who've made the choice to have abortions way differently than the typical pro-life person might today, all right? I know this because I read the Bible, stories like John chapter 8, where we find uh, this story. You can turn in your Bibles uh, with me if you want to. They're in the chairs in front of you if you want to follow along. This is chapter 8, verse 1. <clears throat> Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him. He sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman who had been caught in adultery. Pause. The Pharisees and teachers of the law were the religious right of Jesus' day. They were the ones who kept the rules. They, they walked the line. They judged others who did not. They were the standard bearers. They often are villainized because we think Jesus hated them because of how often he went after them. But I'm telling you, they weren't the bad guys. Jesus didn't go after them because they were bad. He went after them because they were so close to being good. They were so close to getting it. But for all the facts that they knew by heart, they didn't know the one simple truth. And their lives stand as an example that you can know the Bible cover to cover, but even if you know the word of God, you might not know God himself. And so Jesus went after them because they were so close to getting it. And they brought this woman to Jesus uh, because she had been caught in uh, adultery. And this is what happened next. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, it commands us to stone such women. And what do you say? <clears throat> they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing Jesus. To their credit, they're right about the law of Moses. It did, in fact, call for this particular punishment for uh, the crime of adultery. 
which should tell us how serious a crime adultery is because it was punishable by death. But it wasn't just for women who were caught in adultery. The law of Moses called for the same punishment to be handed down to adulterous men. And the obvious question that this story begs is, if you caught this woman in the act of adultery, and if, as we know, it takes two to tango, where's the guy? Is he one of you Pharisees? (laughs) I've known some Pharisees that could fit that bill before in my life. It's not entirely out of the question. Where's the guy? If you caught her in the act, why aren't you equally as motivated to hold the man to account as you are the woman? And I don't know if they were misogynistic or if he just slipped through their fingers, whatever, but it is a sign that they cared more in this moment about being right than they cared about acting righteously. It's a common symptom of people obsessed with religion. And Jesus saw right through it. They're trying to to trap him. It says, the, the trap was this. If Jesus said, you're right, stone her to death. And they took those stones they were holding and threw them at her until she died. They could then go and turn to the Romans and report Jesus for breaking Roman law, which is what they wanted all along. That's why they turned him into the Romans eventually. They wanted Jesus on a Roman cross. So they could look at him and say, look, he's hanging on a tree. The Bible says any man who hangs on a tree is under God's curse. You really think the Messiah is under God's curse? That was their plan from the beginning. But if he said, no big deal, let her go, put your stones down, then they could tell his followers, your favorite rabbi doesn't care about the word of God. That was the catch-22 they presented Jesus with. This is what happened next. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger, And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who's without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. That's like top three most famous passages, most famous things Jesus ever said, right? Let he who's without sin cast the first stone. Again, Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Neither do I condemn you. Jesus said, go now and live your life. Uh, Leave, (laughs) very important, leave. (laughs) Leave your life of sin. All right, so there's the trap and there's Jesus's response. Three lines in this conversation fully embody the fullness of God's mercy. Three lines. Jesus said, has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. And then he said, neither do I condemn you. Go leave your life of sin. In those three lines, we see the fullness of God's grace embodied by the mercy both the grace and the truth, the mercy of God. And Jesus could have said one or the other, right? He could have skipped past, neither do I condemn you, and just said, go, get out of my sight. But that would have been truth without grace. Had he not forgiven her and said, I don't condemn you first, it would have been all truth, no grace. And that's not mercy. That's just religion. On the other hand, Jesus could have said, Neither do I condemn you. Now go. 
without saying, go and leave your life of sin. But that would have been grace without truth. That's not mercy either. Grace without truth, not mercy. That's just Methodist. (laughs) That's the best word I could think of. Sorry, y'all. Some of y'all have something I'm allergic to. I'm allergic to you. (laughs) I'll be okay. But Jesus didn't speak with either grace or truth, did he? He spoke with both grace and truth, which is the perfect recipe for mercy. This is something we should all aspire to, all of us, whenever we're thinking about how to address a topic like abortion. So with this in mind, if this topic is something that hits close to home for you, if this issue is something that's near and dear for whatever reason, and you don't know what to believe because you feel too close to this issue, I want you to know that you're loved, and not just by me or this church, but you're loved by the one who sends us here, the one in whose name we worship. You're loved by the one who made you, and his mercy has forgiven you. He set you free. He loves you completely, just as you are in spite of your past. He loves you fully and receives you and wants you and welcomes you, no matter If you could also wear a shirt as egregious as that one, or if you're in any degree, that would be awesome. Please, thank you. Tissues is what I need right now. (laughs) Thank you, Melody. Oh, wow, and a drink. Is this non-alcoholic? Okay. (laughs) All right. Sorry, y'all. But what I want to say is, if I or any Christian has ever said anything to you that has seemed merciless, I am sorry, and I repent. If I say anything to you today that seems merciless, I repent. Please forgive me. But I want you to hear the truth as well, not just the grace. And that's what we're going to talk about for the rest of this message. Everything that I say, I'm about to say it with love. I want to say it with respect. So let's look at the Bible's answer to this controversial claim that the... uh, The Bible is explicitly pro-life. I think the answer is pretty clear, and I think that it is true. Okay, this uh, actually goes hand-in-hand with y'all's response, which I forgot to mention earlier. You guys responded to this survey by saying 57% of you said it's true, 30% of you said mostly true, another 14 or so percent of you uh, said mostly false or false. But the Bible is pretty clear, I think, in that uh, the sanctity of life is that important to God? It can only be considered true, okay? There's a few reasons for this that I'd like to go over now. The first reason is that every human life is made in God's image. Every human life is made in God's image. This is something we say all the time, and I know it sounds like a little bit of, um, a little bit of routine, and don't let it pass you by and what the political and social implications would be if we believed that every human life is made in the Imago Dei. What this means is we're not just animals. We're not just matter in motion. We're set apart, we're different. There's a difference in taking a human life and taking a non-human one. We know this. 
Even secular courts and justice seekers know this. Of course, there's a difference in taking a human life because why? A human life is unique. A human life is sacrosanct. And we can't just excuse the unjustified taking of human life, right? We're the only ones that can consider or conceive of our, our place in this world or We're the only ones who can cultivate a better world for generations to come. We're the only ones who can think about our our sins, our problems, our shortcomings, our destiny. All these things make us different and unique in this universe. And that's part of what it means to bear the image of God. That's what it means to be human. All right? And I I want you to really get this part. The reason this matters so much in today's landscape is because this Imago Dei doctrine is the foundation of the ideology that every human life is worth protecting and we should go out of our way to protect the most vulnerable. Because if every human life is implicitly and equally valuable because we're created by God in his image, then the most vulnerable, weakest, Poorest, most down and out, most dejected, least popular, most oppressed human life is as valuable and important as the richest, most powerful, most popular, whatever life has ever been. That's why I find there's such an opportunity here. There's such a a way for us to find common ground here with people for whom social justice issues really matter. When I look at people who reject Christianity but say we must stand up for the poor, we must stand up for the oppressed, we must stand up for the down and out, the minorities, the marginalized, I'm like, yes, I agree, but I know why we must do that. What is your why? If we're all just matter in motion with no objective meaning, no creator, no destiny, We're all basically products of Darwinian evolution. Then to follow suit in Darwinian naturalistic evolution, what we should be doing is letting the strong eat the weak. What we should be doing is let the fittest survive, right? Isn't that the principle? But we know it's not. We know it can't be the principle for human life. We must stand up for those who have no voice. But who has less of a voice than an unborn child? Who has less of a voice? Who is less marginalized? Who is more vulnerable than an unborn child? And so when I look at activists, and I used to be an activist, and I used to fight for these kinds of causes on the part of the marginalized and the oppressed. I used to fight, you know, against, you know, police brutality or against misogyny or transphobia or homophobia, or I used to fight against climate change on the part of those who would suffer most, who are the vulnerable, income inequality, all these things. That impulse is good. It's God-given. Of course we should. Of course every human life matters, but of course the logical inconsistency there is that when one in five unborn babies are killed in the womb each year in America, this is no big deal. It's all right. There's a disconnect, obviously. And if we're going to march for the marginalized, the racially oppressed, we're going to say Black Lives Matter, for example, like the fact that almost one half of black pregnancies, black babies are 
killed before they're born, it should trouble us to no end. We should find common ground here as people of faith and with those who are marching for such causes. I often hear people suggesting that if Roe versus Wade is overturned, as it's been rumored, <clears throat> that it will be that these minorities, minority women will suffer the most. It just, it's amazing to me how it's never said that if it weren't, if it weren't for Roe versus Wade being handed down in the first place, those minorities wouldn't be such minorities anymore. We'd have 20 million more black Americans, 12 million more brown Americans. It'd be a whole different country, the whole different voting block. And it, it's like it escapes us how this was the plan from the start. And if you've never looked up the origins of Planned Parenthood, I really encourage you to. It's not a conspiracy theory. The founder of Planned Parenthood was Margaret Sanger, who was a racist and a eugenicist who wanted to control the black and brown population by way of abortion, and she has done it. Mission accomplished. And it's a tragedy. It's evil. We know that it's evil. And the reason why it's evil is because it's a violation of something we all know deep down, that every human life is worthy, valuable, precious. And as we believe, it's made in God's, everyone is made in God's image. The second question then is, when does this life begin? I've seen a lot of arguments lately about when life begins. We believe life begins at conception. Human life begins at conception. This is the biblical response. It's really the only way to understand this biblically. <clears throat> I mean, the, look, the idea that we have identity and importance, personality, that God knows us in the womb is so clear in Scripture. There's no... Counter-argument really to be made, and as, as hard as people have tried since this document was leaked from the Supreme Court, I've seen it, I've seen it all. Psalm 139 says, For you created me in my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. There's an, a knowing in, even from the womb. And this is God speaking through the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 1, verse 5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I pointed you as a prophet to the nations. And it's not just Old Testament passages either. In the New Testament, the most important event in history, the incarnation of Christ, the first three people to recognize Jesus as the Son of God were two pregnant women and a baby, an unborn baby. <clears throat> Mary, the mother of Jesus recognized him as the son of God. Elizabeth, their relative, who was pregnant with her own unborn child, also recognized him as the son of God, as did the baby inside of her womb, who would be called John the Baptist, left inside of Elizabeth's womb when Jesus came near because John knew Jesus already in some powerful way. This is in Luke chapter 1, verses 41 to 43, all right? I'm gonna, you can read that. You can read that for yourselves. I'm going to keep going because I've got a lot to do. <clears throat> but even if, look, even if you don't believe the Bible, it's not like you need the Bible to get the point that life begin, human life begins at conception. In fact, religious guys like me and the Bible are the least of your worries if you're pro-abortion, pro-choice, whatever. <clears throat> because it's science that has really come against you now. In recent years, recent decades, 
Science has become your most formidable foe. Science has shown us in recent years that at the moment of conception, a unique and fully autonomous human being with its own DNA is formed immediately at conception. After six weeks in the womb, there is a discernible heartbeat. After eight weeks, there is a child who already has his or her major organs, already sucking his or her thumb, already feeling pain, pulling away from the pricks of a needle, and responding to sounds in the womb. This is a fully human, fully alive person made in the image of God at conception. This is the biblical answer. Take it or leave it, but this is clearly what the Bible says, and it's supported by science. Third, here's the hard one. Y'all are like, those first two are pretty hard. This is the hardest. Biblically speaking, there is this rule about killing, uh, unjustified killing of people, unjustified killing of a human life. It is defined as murder in the Ten Commandments. Less uh, than 5% of all abortions in America each year are for reasons to, like saving the mother's life or for reasons of rape and incest. Over 90, and these are Planned Parenthood's numbers, by the way, over 95% of aborted babies are for birth control purposes. They're just not wanted. Y'all, I mean, how do you get around this? How is this not considered an unjustified taking of a human life? I'm not saying by any stretch that women who have made this choice are murderers at all, any more than any of the rest of us are. And if you're inclined to think about women who've made this awful choice as such, I would warn you not to, lest you become one of those Pharisees picking up a pitchfork or a stone to go after them, forgetting all about the ways in which you've been complicit in which I've been complicit, in which we all have blood on our hands. We're all a part of this problem. Listen, more than half of all women who've made the choice to have an abortion say that they were pressured by someone else, usually a man in their life, to make that choice. If you've pressured a woman or paid for a woman to have an abortion or driven her to the clinic or whatever, like you're complicit in this conversation, and that's a lot of guys. Just like there's women in this congregation right now who are feeling this so close to home, there are guys who should be too because heaven looks at sin differently than we do. It's not like those bad guys over there making those awful choices and the rest of us in church. No, 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 no. It ain't like that at all. In his most famous sermon, Jesus called everybody out. You know, they're bringing this woman caught in adultery as if she's the only bad one. And Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount said, adultery is not even about following through with the physical act. He said, he said extramarital fantasies are akin to adultery or equal to adultery from heaven's point of view. Y'all, I've been a slave to lust and pornography in my past. I have been an adulterer even without the physical act of the affair. You follow me? Heaven looks at this very, very differently than we do. And we all, for so many different reasons, uh, have complicity in this, unless we get a little bit heavy-handed about blaming a few for making a certain choice we don't agree with. When I saw that woman's shirt, and the 21 that rang a bell for me this week. 
and I wrote in my Friday Grace and Truth email about um, Uvalde. And there was that number again. 21 lives. And what I wrote in Friday's email was whether or not thoughts and prayers are enough at such a time as this. A lot of people have said, Christians, stop it with your thoughts and your prayers and do something, right? It's a valid point. If all we're doing is saying, my thoughts and prayers go out to Uvalde, if you're not getting on your knees and really praying and thinking, and not just thinking and praying about some madman's sins, but starting your prayers with your own confession and repentance, because the Bible's also clear about that, that the effective and powerful kinds of prayer always begins with my sin first. If all I'm thinking is how evil a world it is, I'm missing it because I'm complicit in the evil. If I go to God in prayer and all I think about is other people's sins as, a, as pertains to abortion, I've lost the plot. I've never had an abortion for obvious uh, reasons, right? But if I were to end this sermon without confessing to you that until about two years ago, I had never lifted a finger to help an at-risk mother who might otherwise make that choice, I had never written a check to help anyone who might be in such a position to feel like she has to make that choice. I had never really considered doing something like fostering or adopting until very recently after Jesus got a hold of me. Most of my adult life, I have been more than willing to sit on the sidelines and observe other people in unimaginable circumstances making choices I've never had to make. That makes me complicit from heaven's perspective. It makes me part of the problem. I've never taken 21 lives before. I don't think. But Jesus said... It's not even about murdering other people. He said in that same sermon, and this is the part where we all get it. He said, you've heard, do not murder, and that's good. Don't kill people. But he said, even getting angry at other people, letting anger have you, is just like killing people. Whoops. I haven't killed 21 people, but I've been mad at at least 21 in like this weekend. <laughs> I can picture 21 Little League umpires right now that I was mad enough to kill. <laughs> Jesus said that's the same thing. That's the same thing as taking a life, as being overcome with anger. We've got blood on our hands, we're complicit, we're killers. We're bought into this culture of death that leads to things like this conversation we're having today and this crisis in our culture. It also leads to things like what's happened in Uvalde. The culture of death, we're all a part of it. And if our prayers start with anything other than, my God, have mercy on me. Forgive me. Forgive us. And we've missed it. We're Pharisees. And finally, if today's message hits especially close to home for you, I just want you to know not only about God's love, but his forgiveness too. Because I know for a fact there's people sitting here right now or watching online or over at Timber Grove who have heard me say some of this stuff and it's made you feel worse. 
That's not my intention. In fact, at the end of this message, you should be feeling as free as you've ever felt because the fact is we're all complicit. We're all killers. We're all sinners. But Jesus' blood on the cross is sufficient to forgive every sin. Not only will God forgive you if you ask him to, he already has if you'll just receive it. And your father who made you in his image, who loves you, welcomes you, and waits for you, he's waiting for you now to just receive what he's already given, his own son on the cross as a symbol of his grace that extends forever. His mercy endures. It is for you today, and I pray that you'll say yes to it. If you're at that place where you're ready to receive God's mercy and grace, you can just follow with me in this prayer as I pray. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you. As fallen as we are, as despicable as we've become at times in our lives, we thank you for your forgiveness. As quick as we are to pull the trigger of judgment and point it at other people who sin different than we do, Lord, you've been patient with us. Lord, open our eyes. Help us to see how great and wide and deep your love runs and help us to be willing to confess our own sins, the ways we ourselves have fallen short. And Lord, to receive your mercy and forgiveness. We thank you, Jesus, for your goodness and steadfast love outpace all of our sin and brokenness. We love you. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.